Who do you work for, really? Each one of us has a calling. Have you heard this before? Your workplace is your mission field, wherever that may be. You either work for him or work against him, but you work for someone. Who do you really work for? Is it your clients, your boss, your family, yourself, or your Lord? This isn't a trick question. There is a right answer. You're either all in or all out. Are you for him? I am. In fact, I work for him. Hey, Jim, who do you work for? I work for him. I work for Jesus Christ. I want to be your hands. Let me introduce you to the host of the I Work For Him show, Jim Brangenberg. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You've tuned into the I Work For Him radio show with your host, Jim Brangenberg. Take a minute and listen. I Work For Him, it's not a program that you sign up for. It's a mentality. It's a way of living. It's a permanent shift in your Christ-following paradigm. It's a revolution that's happening in the workplace, and it's about bringing the kingdom of God into places where the kingdom is is ignored. Keep in mind that your existence in your workplace, it's not by chance. It doesn't matter what you do or where you do it. Whether you're a pastor, a car mechanic, an attorney, a teacher, a mom, a used car salesperson, your work, it matters to God. And he expects you to be his representative in your workplace. And in your workplace, to recognize that that's your mission field. And in that mission field, you may be the only Jesus your coworkers and employees may ever meet. Now, I know you've heard me say this tons and tons of times, but every day we need to be reminded that going to work is not just to draw paychecks so we can buy groceries. Going to work every day is an opportunity to be a light for Christ. Each day on the I Work For Him show, we try to bring you the practical, the tactical, the factual, and the biblical ways to incorporate your faith into your workplace. I don't come to you as an expert. I don't come to you as somebody that's got this all figured out. I'm just one guy trying to live my life transparently so that you can maybe gain something in order to be an effective witness for Christ in your workplace. Our paradigm shift is described like this. Romans 12.2, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Welcome to the I Work For Him Zone. I hope you're never the same. All right, every day on I Work For Him, I try to bring a different angle on how we connect our workplace, our mission field, and our faith all together at one time. And I read this incredible book about a month and a half ago. It might have been a little bit longer than that. And I, I learned so much. I'm like, I got to get this author on my show because you listening today are going to learn things and, and you're going to go, ah, and you're going to go, I had no idea there was a book written about this stuff, but I'd like you to welcome Hayden Shaw to the show today. Hayden, thanks for coming on I Work For Him. Well, thank you for having me on here, and wow, what an introduction. Well, you know, it's so true. I mean, I heard about your book, about, I can't remember, it's several months ago, and then I said, okay, I, I'm, I'm friends with the Tyndale guy. My wife is actually friends with him. I said, okay, give me a copy of the book. I really want to read it. And so I'm excited for everybody to learn today what I've learned as these distinct generations. And what I loved, it, the, the book that I read first was your one on generational IQ, which I know is your second book in this series uh, of dealing with the generations, and this is dealing with the five generations that are all at church. And I'm excited that we do this one today, and I want to step back in time, maybe in 2016, and talk about your book, Sticking Points, the four generations working together. And, and what's funny is when I introduced your your Sticking Points book to my roundtable discussion group, which is called Business His Way, and I said, hey, we're going to talk about this book. It talks about the four generations of workplace, and, and one of the guys steps up and he goes, I got five. I got five generations. I got a 75-year-old lady working with me, and I got a, I got a 19-year-old. I got them all. 
I got them all in my workplace. I'm like, oh, okay. I'll make sure Hayden gets to know that one. So it's, it's good to know. So Hayden, as we, uh, as we start this off, I, I just want to thank you for your research because as we, as we dig into this today, people really need to understand the differences. And, and, and it's going to really be a paradigm shift for people today because of what you've written and the research that you've done. It, it opened my eyes up in ways I just never imagined. So I'm so grateful that you followed the Lord and did this research and, and wrote a book about it. But before we get into it, would you mind just sharing with the audience how Christ is making a difference in your life today? How is he making a difference in my life today? Well, I think um, the biggest way he makes a difference in my life is, you know, other than other than the gift of salvation, the, uh, the biggest way he makes a difference is... Um, I'm a person that likes to have something to do and a purpose. And knowing that I'm not only God's child, but we're sons of God, but that um, not only when I was in the, uh, as a minister in church, but also in the marketplace, that I can make an impact, um, that God has a purpose for what I do, that he's given me certain gifts, and he asked me to do certain things, and that he divinely gifts me for those things, um, those are some of the most exciting and encouraging and inspiring um, things, and I think in all of life, it gives a whole, uh, it, it takes a life from, I know some people don't like Ted Turner colorizing the classics, but it takes <laughs> black and white and turns it into color. It's no longer just a job. Boy, this is an, this is an operation of the divine conspiracy. Well, I love that. And I'm not sure people don't like Ted Turner because he's colorizing the classics. I think there's other reasons they don't like Ted Turner. No, I understand. <laughs> some people, some film buffs are like, you should not colorize the classics. And the point is, it, it definitely is going from black to white. Whatever your feelings are about It's a Wonderful Life in Casablanca. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if It's a Wonderful Life would, would work. I don't know I stepped off the point. But when we come back, I really want to dig deep into how the Lord led you to studying the generations. And then I want to really spend some time defining it, because I think when you start to define the traditionalists, the boomers, the Xers, the millennials, and today's yet unnamed generation, the nuns, as you call them, I can't wait for people's eyes just to, their eyebrows to raise and people to go, ah. We're talking today with Hayden Shaw. He's written this incredible book, Generational IQ, and it's Christianity. The subject above it says Christianity isn't dying, millennials aren't the problem, and the future is bright. And boy, in our churches, Hayden, it is it is real. Church people are uptight. They don't understand what's going on, but they know something is changing. That's true, and it makes us scared. Uh, when we don't know what's happening, it makes us scared. In the book and on my website, I compare it to those scary movies where, uh, where, the, where the, usually a young woman goes down in the basement without turning the lights on, and we all know because the music starts up that it's not going to be good. And um, the point I make is um, sometimes you have to go in the basement. You can't go back. There's no going back to the good old days. But at least we can turn on the light and get some generational intelligence and shed some light on some of the things. that What I say about the book, the ten topics that freak Christians out, that generational research actually helps calm us down and makes us smarter and better able to deal with them. So you say in your book that really you were, it was, you were filling the pulpit for your senior pastor. And that was really what pushed you into becoming an expert. It, well, well, let me just ask you, is that what really pushed you to becoming an expert and identifying and related to the generations? Because you had a pulpit fill, and when you got done, then the senior pastor came back, and, and it wasn't a pleasant experience. No, it wasn't. The, um, 
there are actually three key pieces to it. Let me go backwards historically. I started a church right out of uh, college, so I graduated, and at 24 I started a church for um, baby boomers, because back in the day, um, that was back in the mid-'80s, baby boomers had dropped out of church. Half of all boomers had quit going. And so back then there was even a greater focus on what are we going to do to reach boomers than there is today on what are we going to do to reach millennials and nuns. And uh, N-O-N-E-S, the, the people who don't claim a religious affiliation we've been hearing about so much lately. Anyway, so you had to do a lot of understanding of baby boomers in order to do a, 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 a church. So today it's pretty commonplace. Matter of fact, my son, who's in new church planting, who's 26, even refers to it as old school church planting with uh, dramas and worship services, with contemporary music and drums and more conversational preaching. He refers to that as old school, which makes me crazy. He thinks Chris Tomlin music and Lincoln Brewster is old school music, but it just makes me feel old. But anyway, um, so I had to learn about generations then. But before that, um, I was a youth minister, and I did that sermon you mentioned, where I talked about things we have to do to connect with young people today. And the evening, the senior minister of the church um, got in the pulpit and preached and called me a heretic. And he went down all the points of my sermon and said, boys and girls, that's how we referred to our youth group, boys and girls, when Hayden says that there are differences in the generation, that's a heresy that uh, makes excuses for young people who don't want to follow Christ. And so everything that I saw as a generational difference, he just saw spiritual laziness, because if we were all going to go to heaven, we were going to go as a traditionalist, because um, that's what would have made Jesus happy. Well, and it's so... Yeah, I mean, and I'm I'm in that, you know, I, I was born just too late to be a boomer and really at the beginning of the Generation X generation. But it is, I, I have studied, I've done a lot of church study, and, and I have seen what you wrote about in the book just helped me understand so many things because, I, you know, I, I still like Chris Tomlin music, but I know I visited a church in Fort Myers this weekend that is definitely a— uh, was at least a millennials church. I don't know that it's reaching the nuns, but it is. But it was. It, it is. Church is different. I mean, it was. It, it was. It was just very different. And I'm okay with it. I just want everybody to love Jesus and, and to recognize Him as their Savior. I don't care how they do the worship time. I'm good with it. I can figure it out. But, you know, like I say in the book, um, you are not your church's target market for the music. Right. It's the people who don't attend who are your church's target market. And so, uh, if you don't like it. But the people who don't come to church like it, then you got to like it, because we're all about the people who don't know Jesus, not about the people who do. So when saved people complain, I smile and say, well, good, you're going to go to heaven, and when we get to heaven, there are going to be thousands of types of music from all different generations. We might as well just practice here on earth, getting used to things that we're not used to when we get to heaven. Let's just call this warm-ups. I love that. And it is it is so true. One one morning, about nine or ten months ago, I was at church, and, and the lights went down, and the music came up, and I'm like, just imagine somebody from the outside who'd never been to church before walking into this service. I don't think there's any way on God's green earth that they would stay. No way. Just too weird. Just just too weird. I, I just That's why I Work For Him really came about. It's like, okay, people aren't going to church anymore. we got to start bringing Jesus way more effectively into the workplace. But that's not the topic of the show today. But let's talk about understanding. Yeah, but gener- that could be another topic because, as I say in the book, that's the, that's the way we're going to impact the nuns, right. the N-O-N-E-S, the people who won't go to church. And especially on church millennials, 80% of them, in a survey Ed Stetzer did their Lifeway research, 80% of them said that if they needed spiritual guidance, they would not go to a church. 
Because yeah, because they see church as uh, non consequential, as it just it's a waste of time. They don't even understand it, and, and it's either because their their parents never talked about it or whatever it may be. But let's let's dig into the generations because I think it'll help everybody understand it more. And, and I think everybody just needs to hear from my heart and Hayden's heart. We're not criticizing the church, but the but the world has changed. It's not the same world that it was fifty years ago, uh, and we need to recognize that in order to reach lost people, which is the purpose of the church, it's not to provide a sanctuary for Christians to huddle. It's to provide a place for non-Christ followers to find out about Jesus. But that whole mission is shifting because we're not going to get them into our buildings, but we have to understand how people think because there's plenty of traditionalist boomers, Generation Xers, millennials, and nuns that don't go to church in all the generations. I mean, we live down here in Tampa Bay. Hayden, 80% of the people don't go to church. I mean, it's a huge, right. it's a huge number. So let's, well, we've all in the book in, in chapter ten. I talk about that. Um, Christianity isn't dying. It's all the all the reports we've heard of how it's dropping dramatically. Um, it, they're simply not true because there were never as many people in church as we thought. Um, and there were certainly not as many people who would be conservatives. I'm of the evangelical um, part of the religious spectrum. Evangelicals were never even half as big as we were. As we were told or thought, uh, or thought they were, and so it seems like it's dropping like crazy when it's just we'd had bad data before. So it's kind of a it's kind of a back, backward. It's the equivalent of a, of a backhanded compliment. The good news is it's not dropping nearly as fast as we're hearing. The bad news is it was never as big as we thought it was. And the opportunities, as you say right in your book cover, the future is bright. There's so much opportunity for reaching people for Christ, but we need to step outside of our boxes. Actually, we just need to burn the boxes and and start looking at people through God's eyes. And, and so let's start drawing the picture. Let's start off with traditionalists. Let's just describe each one of these um, generations and some of the tendencies of them. And we'll, it'll take us a couple of segments to get through all these, but describe traditionalists for me. You got it. So traditionalists are people who are uh, uh, 70 years and older at this point, and uh, um, then the baby boomers come after them, and they're you know they're a age group of the sudden spiking of babies after World War II, and they end around 19, you know 1963 to 65, and then the Generation Xers come on till 1981, and then the Millennials start up after 1981. So you know they're people who are 34, 35, and younger, and uh, you know now a good chunk of the adult workforce, um, as well as teenagers, and somewhere around 10 to 15, if it follows previous patterns, there's this next generation, and we're not sure what to call them yet. And um, nobody agrees on the name, but this new fifth generation is coming along. So churches have all five of them um, inside of them. And so there's spiritual strengths and weaknesses of each of the generations. And uh, my mother-in-law, who's um, legally blind, she is, she's taken the book and is reading it under her big video eye that magnifies everything. You know, the letters are about two inches tall. And she said to me as we were heading off to church this weekend, she said, you've not been very nice to us traditionalists. I said, that's all right, you're fine, you just, you just keep reading, I'm not nice to everybody. Because every generation has certain strengths. I said, hey, I said, you guys are, you guys are the givers, 70% of church, uh, of the giving to, to religious organizations outside the church come from people over 70, uh, 65 and over. So some of the boomers and the traditionalists, they're the big givers. Um, they, they are willing to jump in, they have low standards of how or, of churches need to be run. Um, Baby boomers are a lot fussier. They have to, the organization has to be run well for baby boomers to want to, to want to help out. Traditionalists are more likely to say, hey, 
whatever it is, I'm willing to jump in and help. That's you know, that's a great quality. And, uh, you know, traditionalists are wonderfully loyal. On the other hand, spiritually, um, they struggle with retirement. They're the, you know, their, their generation has lived longer than any other generation. And so they've got more wealth and health than any other generation. And so for them, the challenge is the traditional retirement of work, retire, die in two to five years. That doesn't apply anymore. So what do they do for the kingdom of God for the rest of their retirement? Hayden, I'm so excited about what you're talking about today, the generations and how we, you know, this, your book's all about understanding how they relate to God, understand how we can, how they experience church. But we're right before the break, you were going through a, a kind of a description of the different generations. And you were talking about the traditionalists and how they've lived longer than any generation well, since, I don't know, maybe Abraham, <laughs> I mean, long time. And they, they, after they retired, they ended up having 20 plus years. What do they do with their time? How do they deal with it? And that's a question they're asking. They don't know what to do because nobody ever thought they'd live this long. How many times have you heard some uh, grandparent or uh, a relative say, if I'd known I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself? <laughs> and so that's almost a standard punchline now in uh, Thanksgiving or family Christmas conversations. And so it's, you know, it's true. What do you do with your life when, you're, when there's now a new life stage between um, adulthood and then um, aged adulthood or um, old older adulthood, there's this new life stage often called second adulthood, where people have a lot of freedom and a lot of choices and a lot of decisions. And so one of the great spiritual temptations of the genera- the older generation is to see retirement through the same eyes it was when people didn't live as long, instead of seeing retirement as a whole new opportunity to uh, enjoy yourself, because of the greater freedom, but also make an amazing impact for God's kingdom um, here and around the world. And God didn't give people more years and more money. Uh, we're not the longest living and the wealthiest generation in history for ourselves. Um, of course, I was about to say, so you can have a big screen TV and vacation where it's warm. Yeah, but they're cheap Although anymore. Although those are both not, that's nice. That's not why he gave it to us. He gave it to us because he's got stuff to get done in the world. Well, and um, But it's interesting and then you... For the, Go ahead. I was going to say, it's interesting you say that because my, my folks are in their early 80s, so they're definitely boomers. They're definitely traditionalists. They were born in the mid-30s. And mm-hmm. they and I've gone and spoken to their Sunday school class several times full of people 60 and mid-80s. And I said, listen, huh? people, you're getting my Social Security. I sure, I'm glad that you're getting to enjoy it, but let me just tell you something. The generations that are coming after you desperately need old people in their lives. You need to invest in these people. They need old people because that's what my wife and I do marriage mentoring and the couples that are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, they don't have an upline like we like we did as kids. They don't have grandparents around. They don't have parents that are married and around. And and, and this we've got this generation of church that they don't know what to do with them and the church kind of sets them aside and says, "You guys have your own old people group." But really we need those old people to be integrating with the young people because they desperately need they need wisdom. They need the knowledge of, of people that have lived 70 and 80 years. All right, let me give you one example of that. 70% of all active church youth group attenders, so these aren't, these aren't kids that quit, dropped out of your church youth group uh, when they were freshmen in high school. These are, these are people who graduated from your church's youth group. Um, 70% of them between 18 and 23 will quit going to church for at least a year. Seven out of ten. Now, many of them will come back. Two-thirds will come back. So it's not like dire 
Um, but it's still a big deal. And the one thing that will cut that in half is if some adult, other than their parents, stays in contact with them. So the absolute best reason for a traditionalist to learn to text message, other than they, that's how they talk to their grandkids and their great-grandkids, the, the, best reason, the second best reason to learn to do it after their own grandkids is the folks that graduate from the youth group, the, you know, the 18-year-old, 19-year-olds who head off into work or to college. And just a text message every other week to, to keep in touch with them will drop the church dropout rate in half. But getting the church as a whole to understand the value that they have in the the retirees in their congregation, that seems to be a struggle, because I don't know that most churches really understand the wealth that they have in people that they kind of push off to the side. What's so funny, my mentor in church consulting, Carl George, one of the um, leading um, consultants in churches for the last 30 years, Carl George, when he reviewed the book, he said actually the the chapter that he found to be the most helpful was the one on what do we do with the boomers and the traditionalists, because there's so much attention now on how to reach the millennials, and there should be. I don't think there's enough. There was more, as I mentioned before. When I was starting churches in the 80s, there was more attention on the boomers dropping out than there is on the millennials. So I think that's a problem. But one of the things that makes it so complicated today is we've got four generations. And we don't spend much time talking about what do we do with the with these baby boomers and traditionalists, and especially the baby boomers who all have all this corporate experience, who've been in organizations and um, and can bring so much to churches and not for profit organizations. But um, we need to tap into them a different way. It is not going to be, hey, what can I do to help, Pastor? Well, we've got these bulletins, or you could fold, or you could answer phones. Or we need somebody in the nursery. They're like, okay, I'll do that. But I was meaning, how can I help you rework your hiring process so that you uh, are much more effective in the next staff people you hire? That's what I did for 30 years in the companies that I worked for. I was able to save them millions of dollars in mishires. I just like to bring that talent to the church. We don't know how to tap into the generation that has more education and more organizational experience than any other generation in history up to that point. We, we don't know what to do with them, and so they're going to non for profit organizations to bring their expertise and they're bringing their hands and feet skills to the church. I can fold bulletins, I can work in the nursery, I can do important things, but not things that are equal to the experience or skills they have. We are we we have been telling the millennials, you'll be the generation that can change the world. It is time to aim that message at their parents and grandparents. Amen. Wow, cool. All right, so we, unfortunately we got to move on to the boomers. Let's describe the boomers a little bit. And and I know I I led you down that path, but I it it's such a frustration for me because we have such a wealth of people, and I really feel like they get disregarded, and, and I'm tired of it. But let's talk about the boomers. Well, no, that is exactly right. We put them out to pasture because the question we need to ask before we ask the important question of how do we reach the youngest generations is what do we do if it works? If it works, what do we do with the people who we will have to make enough adjustments in the church that it won't feel like their church anymore, and they're going to feel like they've been shuttled off to put to pasture? What do we do with them? And if we can't answer that church, then we can't answer that question. We've set our church up to create unnecessary frustration. 
We need to be able to reach the younger generation and make the changes that we need to make. But we also have to have some answers on what happens to the people who have been here for a long time and have still have so much to contribute. So I couldn't agree more. Baby boomers, we've already been talking about because as I'm at the – like you, I'm um, a, a cusper between the boomers and the Xers. But, um, so I'm halfway between both here being 52. Um, but the boomers are now moving into the, you know, the next stage of life. They're qualifying for their AARP card. They're able to come in at four and get a discounted, get discounted dinner. I mean, they are truly moving into that next stage of life. And so I've already talked about the fact that churches are missing um, the skills they can have uh, and that they can bring to the table for uh, um, unique among the generations to have that proportion of people with education and experience. So as as you look at the baby boomers. Like you said, these are well-educated people, a lot of them college-educated for the first generation ever, all majority of them college-educated, got years and years of corporate experience, and what are we doing with them? Well, the uh, I think they've got some spiritual strengths and weaknesses. One of the spiritual strengths is um, captured by Christian music. They brought God close. Christian music is love songs to God. The um, So it's a, you know it's a powerful thing. Um, on the other hand, they uh, sometimes domesticated God, and um, and so they brought him close, and they made a personal relationship with him, and then they kind of wanted to boss him around and tell him what to do. God in a box. And uh, there's not quite the same respect and sacredness or holiness, and that's the downside. You know, the, that's the downside of that temptation. I refer to it as hyper-individualism. Nothing wrong with individualism. You know, it's one of the things we fight for uh, worldwide as we talk about, you know, uh, preserving democracy and, and our values. But there's hyper-individualism, which makes it all about me. And you can see that a bit, for example, just in, in music as well as Bible studies. Uh, when people ask the question, not what does the text mean, but what does the text mean to you? Well, uh, really the question is, what does the text mean to Paul and why do you write it? And, um, you know, it's one thing to learn to apply it. It's another thing to make the primary question we ask, what's this mean to you, or I didn't get anything out of it. (laughs) You know what? Um, Half the Bible is God telling us about himself. It's theology. Well, I don't get anything out of it. Uh, um, Just shush up. (laughs) I love that. I'm just there were li- there were lightning bolts um, thrown down for stuff like that. So just shush up. It's hyper individualism, and then it ties into psychology, where um, there's a huge trust in psychology. I- I'd suggest this that this heavily educated generation is not heavily educated in scripture, for example, um, and they they're more educated in psychology. You can listen to them debate parenting theories as grandparents, you know, hey, well, here's what my kids should be doing with their with my grandkids. They can debate the ins and outs of parenting theory from psychology, but they can't necessarily um, compare the, uh, you know, um, Peter's um, view of the end times to Paul's. They don't know a lot about Scripture, but they know psychology inside now. And what that illustrates is that not only are we hyper-individualistic, that just across all generations, and starting with the boomers, we've really given psychology a huge pride of place in shaping our day-in and day-out thinking. Well, it's that just true. The it's so the true. Ex- boy, the ex- Go ahead. It's just so true. I mean, what you're saying is just so true. And so um, the Xers, man, the Xers brought, you know, they, they grew up with the divorce, you know, as Shanti Feldham has um, pointed out, one of the great researchers, a great Christian woman, she is 
you know, uh, um, studied the numbers in depth, and 30% of people have divorced. Um, it's never been higher than 30%, even though we've heard 50. But, you know, one out of three people has a huge implication, because as you pointed out, one out of three people don't have a mentor anymore who's gone all the way through to a marriage to, you know, into their 70s or 80s, as, as your parents did. And so um, they don't have those lines, like you mentioned. And so for them, community, creating a family, and the show Friends captures this completely. There are no adults in the show Friends that are any more than cartoons. The only fully drawn characters are the friends themselves. They created their own family. They moved together. They hang together throughout a decade of their life. It's not at all uncommon for exers to relocate, not to be closer to family, but to be closer to their friends who has become their family. And and it is so. And when you look at friends, not only was there they were they, they hung out together, but there was literally no substance there. But it, you know, and that's really... no, that, that's right. They were fully drawn characters that didn't have uh, the, uh, that had some big holes in their character. It's what made it a comedy. But it also was sad in so many ways. Well, it went from Cheers to Friends. I mean, when you look at Cheers, it, I mean, Friends was just Cheers without the yeah. bar. I mean, it was the same kind of thing. And, and, and our generation watched the 11 years of Cheers or nine years of Cheers. So when you go from the Xers, you know, those are the people now in their, you know, in their Which, 40, by the way, with Seinfeld, with Seinfeld in between sure. for the cusp of boomers to Xers, you could really look at the generations in those sitcoms, by the way. I know I've sidetracked this, but it is a study in generations to watch Cheers, Seinfeld, and Friends. Study in generations. I would agree. I, I'd, I'd also go to the Tonight Show. And you look at Johnny Carson versus Jay Leno. Okay, I mean, there's a, there's oh, a, you bet. There's a big difference. All right, so the Generation Xers, the, you know, a lot of the churches today are focused on the Xers. I mean, they really they really are. But that's gotten really old because us Xers are fifty. I mean, I consider myself an well, Xer. Well, you are an Xer, and you yes. Yeah, but so the 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 Xers are now running around fifty one, fifty two, depending on where you break it off, down there to the mid thirties, and so you know they're now the people who are raising most of the kids in the in in church and youth group, uh, church school. They're the people who are raising those, and you know they're the they're the middle managers now. That's correct. And so the you know the the tie dye generation that wanted to bring their dog to work is telling the next generation at work that you need to get rid of your flip-flops and you need to change your dress code and you need to change your attitude. Yeah, yeah, and now you got to wear ties again. Not in Florida, but in most places. All right, so let's no, move on. Right. And that's why I live here. I never, If I have to wear a tie, somebody's got to have died, and I'm still not sure I'm going to wear a tie. <laughs> Talk to me about the millennials. Gotcha. So while Xers have brought us community, they also tend to be, they, they tend to not like institutions and they tend to be rather cynical. Millennials, on the other hand, are not cynical. Um, they're optimistic. Millennials are very optimistic about their own personal lives and prospects. Um, and they have breathed the air of their baby boomer parent psychology. They grew up in that atmosphere. And so for them, one of the great strengths is the, the ability to come together as teams, their tribal, um, and the way they have the text messaging, group text messaging has allowed them to have multiple friends. Um, they are all about authenticity. They don't want spin. While the Xers parody, the millennials simply don't want spin. That's part of the reason why they have such a different uh, approach to worship 
than the boomers did. The boomers liked highly polished TV show like worship services. Millennials are like, give us a little edge to it. My son calls them pageantry. I don't want your prayers you've written out and memorized ahead of time. Amen. I want a prayer where you stumble or think about what the words are. I don't. I, I want it to feel real and authentic. Well, and I think that's the craze, or that's what we're seeing in this next political election, is that the people who are completely uncharacteristic of a typical politician, those are the ones rising to the top on both, si- on both no, that's sides. That's right, because it seems, it seems authentic. Yeah, it seems it real. Seems authentic. Yeah, people yeah. people are anti regular politician. I mean, when you look even on the on the left or the right, they are pretty much non standard. Right. They're non standard politicians who are questioning everything. No, that, the, no, that's right. It would be the right the farthest <laughs> the far on both sides the farthest out we've been since probably Ross Perot and. Um, um, and that's reaching back. For some of you who are yeah. millennials listening to this, look it up on Google. Drive <laughs> safely if you're driving, but look it up on Google. You have to be an old dog like me to even remember Ross Perot as a candidate. But the um, uh, So this desire for authenticity is a huge one. Now, the downside of, the downside of that is having grown up in that atmosphere of psychology, um, morality is – there was a radio show where they were giving a comparison of, would you rather have this or that? So you had to pick between bad choices. And one of the questions was, would you rather be prejudiced or a cannibal? And the callers picked a cannibal over being prejudiced. Wow. What it shows is that the ultimate sin today, and Christian Smith, one of the great researchers of religion in the younger generation, Christian Smith discovered that the greatest sin of all is to judge somebody else. Even for people who have grown up in the church, they've imbibed this idea of psychology that judge not lest you be judged, which is not at all what Jesus meant in that verse. And, um, um, and so it is, you know, even if I believe your moral choices are wrong, they're wrong for me personally, but I don't have a right to tell you they're wrong for you. Now, about 25% of the young people that grew up in church don't believe that, but the vast majority of millennials believe that, and the vast majority of millennials who grew up in churches, even churches that, that's the surprising part of the research, um, even churches that have a heavy emphasis on Bible, not just more moderate or liberal churches, but churches that have a heavy emphasis on Bible and morality, still believe that while that's true for me, I can't say it's true for you. It's not my right to judge you. Right, it's tough. I want to hit the last generation because when we come back from our for our last break, we got to give some positive news to people. So let's make sure we do that. So talk to me about the nuns, these people that really don't want to be affiliated with any religious organization. Okay, you got it. We'll do it. Well, no, we still got some time. So go ahead and do the nuns right now. Oh, perfect. All right. Well, so nuns wouldn't be so much the next generation as they are. They cut across all generations. The um, mm. that last generation, uh, there's not a lot of research on yet. A um, couple of things we know about them, and they're 14 year old or 15 year old and younger. We know that um, many of them have been have grown up completely secularly. In that, they don't know Bible stories at all. So you can't do a sermon where you refer to something because they don't know who they don't know who Joseph is. They don't they don't know who he is. Um, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat would be as close as some of them would know, and they'd have to be in the musicals. All right? And so the second thing we know is they're always on. That's the name I think fits them well, is always on generation. Within 40 minutes of awakening, 
almost all of them have touched some kind of screen within 40 minutes. And we've all seen a one-year-old stand at a TV and swipe the screen and <laughs> get frustrated that nothing's happening. And so that's what we know about them. And um, we know that their parents are even more involved in their lives than the Xers, the helicopter parents, were involved in, their, in the millennials' lives. The millennials are involved in their kids' lives' parents. And so all of this um, will shape this, uh, this next generation. Now about the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Those are people who claim on surveys they have no religious affiliation. The, um, uh, and that's grown. According to the Pew Research Center, it's grown 7% in seven years. So it's a huge drop in people who are claiming a religious affiliation. Two parts of that. Um, it's not as bad as it sounds because a lot of people don't want to claim a religious affiliation, even though they attend church regularly and are deeply involved. And 50% of all the nuns attend church at Christmas or at Easter. So it, they don't want to name a religious affiliation. Um, as much, but, but it doesn't mean they're as opposed to religion as it sounds. Well, and I'm, I'm not sure I want to be judged by a religious affiliation. I just want to be called a Christ follower. We're talking today with Hayden Shaw about his book, Generational IQ. And ladies and gentlemen, I read this book from cover to cover. I wrote 14 questions. We've gotten through three. So, Hayden, we may have to, uh, we may have, to have another show about this. Let's just give people some hope, Hayden. This, you know, where is the hope in all of this? How do we reach all of these generations for Christ in a... a can you do it under one roof? Um, yes, and you don't have to. Some churches can do it all under one roof, and um, some churches will specialize. There is nothing—when I coach churches, consult with churches, some of them I say, look, you have more people who are baby boomers or Xers in your area than any other generation. I know you want to have a church full of young families, because you believe if you don't have young families, your church doesn't have a future. Most of the young people who raised in your church will move away and go someplace else. You are raising leaders for other churches. Your church can have a future if you just reach other baby boomers and other Xers. Well, just bloom with the group God has planted you with, if I can take an old, old phrase. Um, some churches can reach them all. Some churches should focus. All churches need to talk more about it um, and get clear as to what God's asking us to do. How do we reach them all? Well, you know what? We've got to understand them to reach them. That seems to be, a, it seems to go without saying, but you know, there aren't that many sources where people can go for generational IQ. And if we can get our generational quotient up, the future can be bright because we can understand how different generations see things and we can speak to them more effectively. For example, for parents and grandparents, understanding how millennials see the world today differently than what you were growing up with is absolutely critical if you're going to pass on your faith and help your children navigate the 20s, this other new life stage now that we live so much longer. And so it's really, we can make some big mistakes by thinking they they run into the same problems that we ran into. It's so Understanding different. the different generations helps us be smarter and wiser as we present um, as we present our faith, as we help connect with them, and as we help them think through their faith. Hayden Shaw, thanks for being on I Work For Him today. Fantastic conversation. I appreciate it. You appreciate what you've written very, very much. Thank you. All right. Hey, as we come to the end of another I Work For Him show, I really hope that you heard what Hayden was talking about today. I mean, really, the impact. If we're going to take this city for Jesus Christ, we need to understand the people that are around us. And that's what Hayden's written this book for, helping us to understand the different generations. What did you learn today?
You know, we learned today that our faith gets impacted by, listen, the, the culture around us. And we've got these five generations that, that look at, at life differently. They've experienced life differently. They've experienced God differently. They look at church differently. And, and, they've, and what's amazing is, is how you can almost generalize it, although I know that there's always dangers and generalizations, but each one of these generations has needs. And as Christ followers, and we work with them in the workplace, and we, we, we have neighbors from all these different generations, we've got an opportunity to be Jesus. And we don't have to all have degrees in, in seminary degrees in order to be able to minister to people. But we do need to be willing to try to understand these people. But that just comes through conversation. That comes by engaging them where they're at. And I brought Hayden on today so that we can understand the people that we live with. Because if there's any hope for our generations that live today, we've got to bring Jesus to those generations. You've been listening to I Work For Him with your host, Jim Brangenberg. I'm a Christ follower and I own my own business, but ultimately I work for him.